Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash thehistoryofchina. Every episode has its own post with maps, a comment section, etc. It's amazing. And of course, remember to rate the show five stars if you like the show. It does mean a lot to me. But if you don't like the show, well, I guess my email is publicly available on the website, so you know where to give me all of your complaints. And of course, thank you to all of those who have sent me messages this week and to those who have donated. But like last week, I'm going to ask the same thing. If you are going to loosen up the purse strings for anything, it really should be to donate to the I'm Not Done Yet Foundation. In 2017, Bobby Mengus passed away the first semester of his junior year after losing his battle with cancer. But not before he and the Pi Kappa Alpha chapter at Duke University started the Shave and Buzz event. Each year, members of the fraternity and beyond shave their heads in solidarity and raise money to fight cancer. Funny money-raising challenges that involve hair dyes, running, and so many other things. You name it, it all happens. The money supports AYA programs and services for adolescents and young adults at the Duke University Medical Center and the Duke Cancer Institute. Just as last week, I'll put a link up on the site for this week's episode, so please, it would mean a lot if you checked that out and donated. And if enough of you donate before Saturday, March 27th, 2021, maybe we can try and shave my head in a funny way while we're at it. Anyway, where were we? Ah, yes. Last week, we finally got to the onset of the Han Xiongnu War. Emperor Wu had taken the reins in 141 and immediately said that the Xiongnu's disrespect and failure to comply with the past agreements, well, that's not going to fly. He wanted a full-fledged war, but his court disagreed. So they compromised for a surprise ambush and trap for the Chan Yu of the Xiongnu. Remember, Chan Yu is their version of, you know, king. Anyway, the trap was laid in 133 BC at Ma'i, but someone tipped the Xiongnu Chan Yu off that, well, there's a 300,000-man army over there. I think this is a trap. So, trap failed, but now all the cards were on the table. And there was now only one option. War. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 31, The Han Xiongnu War, Part 1. The ambush at Mai was a failure, but now Emperor Wu got his wish, and him and the Xiongnu chose war. But real quick, let's catch up on the rest of the world. We've sort of been in our own little bubble here, and while everyone technically was in their own little bubbles, we, in the present day, can look back and see what was happening all over the place. Well, in 146 BC, Rome sacked Carthage and Corinth, effectively making them the masters of the Mediterranean. The Third Punic War that had just ended then saw Rome invade with some 45,000 troops. The trap at Mai had allegedly 300,000. 
Obviously, 300,000 is a fabrication, but even if you cut that number in half, or even by 75%, you get the idea. So as Rome is consolidating itself as a Mediterranean power, the Han are looking for total supremacy over China. Speaking of which, back to China. Now, since Mai Yi, time had passed. 133 BC was the realization that the war was here, but both sides did not just dive headfirst into it. A few years passed before full-on conflict. As per the usual, the Han Dynasty had a massive army. They never disappeared. But no actual generals were commanding it. Remember, and this is something I do keep saying, I know, but the fact that the Han Dynasty would promote generals on an ad hoc basis is something really worth noting. This is a very savvy political play. And I won't continue on this tangent any further explaining the details, because I know we've gone over it, but yes, remember, ad hoc generals. So, Emperor Wu thought about it and appointed Wei Qing and Li Xi as his generals. They wouldn't be the only generals, but for now, they were the leaders. In 129 BC, the Han went on the offensive. To really understand the foundation of the conflict, we have to discuss the changes the Han dynasty had made in preparation. So far, we know Emperor Wen and Emperor Jing stabilized the dynasty and beefed up its economic and military capabilities. If you really have been taking notes, you would also remember that I mentioned in the Han Society episode, but that the Han were an outlier in Chinese history due to their extremely strong emphasis on cavalry. Something like over 30% of their army was cavalry, now, compared to numbers below 10% for the dynasties before and right after, I mean, that's insane. This is a major note of the Han military. Thus, one of the things the military did in order to properly fight against the Xiongnu was to pump up its cavalry to combat the Xiongnu, which themselves were steppe nomadic horsemen. The fastest a human being could go on land during this time and for the next thousand plus years was the speed of a horse. So if the Han are going to deal with a giant confederation of expert horsemen in the vast space of the steppe, a bunch of soldiers walking around trying to chase them down on foot would end as bad as you would think it would. This new Han army with an intense emphasis on cavalry began its offensive with General Wei Qing using 40,000 cavalrymen in a surprise attack on the Xiongnu frontier markets, killing several thousand of the Xiongnu. Not full-scale conflict per se, but the Han were done with the decades of submitting to the whims of the Xiongnu. No more Xiongnu raids that go unresponded. In blunt terms, the Han were seizing the initiative, during the next year, 128 BC, Wei Qing and 30,000 of his men defeated the Xiongnu in the regions around Yanmen in modern-day Shanxi, China. Again, of course, a lot of locations, but these will all be on the maps on the website. 
But anyway, these quick jabs were just the opening flurry. And if you're wondering if the Xiongnu were just going to keep taking these jabs sitting down, don't worry. They are not. Quickly after this, the Xiongnu retaliated in the next year and crushed the Han garrisons defending Liaoxi in northeast China and killed its governor and then turned their forces toward Yanmen, the region Wei Qing had just marauded through. Yeah, it's heating up, and it's only going to keep getting hotter. In response to the surprisingly lethal Xiongnu counterattack, Wei Qing then moved quickly towards the Xiongnu forces and captured a large number of their soldiers, which caused the main Xiongnu force to actually withdraw from Liaoxi. I know, it's a lot. This is the opening flurry, and both sides look to get a foothold before the conflict hits its existential phase. But real quick recap, the Han go in, invade the frontier markets, take over and invade Yanmen, the Xiongnu counterattack, they go after Han garrisons defending Liaoxi, the Xiongnu actually take it, and then the Han re-counterattack and take it back. It's a big back and forth, and I know it's a little confusing. But again, highly recommend to check the maps out on the website. But after this opening flurry, and that's what we're going to call it, the conflict then focused on the Ordus Loop, which is the region where the Yellow River makes its rectangular bend in the center of modern-day China. If you have been really taking notes, I mean really, really taking some notes, the Ordus Loop is the region that the Qin Dynasty had seized from the Xiongnu, and thus, by extension, made that very first poke of the bear that ticked the Xiongnu off in the first place. It's all coming full circle. And I mean it. This really is it. The chips are on the table, and everyone is going all in. Again seizing the initiative, Wei Qing burst into the Ordus Loop region and outflanked the Xiongnu forces, eventually surrounding them completely and allegedly killing 2,300 and capturing another 3,000 Xiongnu soldiers. Opening jabs are done. Now both sides are going for full-on haymakers. This victory in the Ordus Loop that Wei Qing just accomplished was such a massive and quick victory that the Book of Han stated that the Han military, quote, returned with all warriors intact, end quote. Now, while that is most certainly not true, the region was of vital importance, and the Xiongnu soon launched a large counteroffensive. Losing the Ordus Loop to the Qin made the Xiongnu really mad. Now, in the midst of a full-fledged war, losing the initiative there, of course, made the Xiongnu really, really mad. The Xiongnu's right-worthy prince, one of the two military leaders of the Xiongnu forces, remember the left-worthy prince was the other, and then the center was the Chanyu, the main leader, well, the right-worthy prince started raiding within the Ordus Loop. The Han under General Wei Qing had made the first move and had the advantage, so the Xiongnu were looking to shake the tree a bit. But what happens next is just one of the many examples that makes this conflict just so fascinating. Wei Qing, 
Instead of trying to catch this elusive Xiongnu enemy in the open field, like virtually all Chinese and settled societies would try to do, he fought the enemy with their own strategy. In 126 BC, Wei Qing got 30,000 of his cavalrymen at the beginning of the night to march an extremely long distance to a place called Gaochue. Again, going to be on a map on the post. But once there at Gaochue, he surrounded the Xiongnu camp and then commanded a daring night assault on the camp. Now, night assaults are next to impossible in the ancient world. There's no flashlights. Communication is virtually non-existent. You can't even see anything. I mean, imagine coordinating 10 of your friends in pitch black conditions. It's pretty difficult. Now imagine, you know, let alone a 30,000 man military force engaging in deadly battle. Yeah, you can see how a night raid is kind of hard. But Wei Qing gave the order. And the Han cavalry killed thousands and captured 15,000 Xiongnu, including dozens of nobles. Boom. The Han cavalry sent the right worthy prince running, quote, for his life out of his drunken slumber, end quote. Furthermore, the Han had captured, quote, a million head of cattle, end quote. Wei Qing then turned north, and went towards the Xiongnu in the Gobi Desert. And I want to go back to that point. The settled society, the Han, went out on horseback and seized a nomadic group's lifeline, their cattle. They killed their leaders before they could escape into the vastness of the steppe, captured thousands, killed thousands, and won a crucial encounter. This is something that's really impressive, and I can't stress that enough. Whether it's Rome or the Holy Roman Empire, anybody. Dealing with steppe nomads has always been sort of a problem. Because the settled societies want a straight battle. But as we saw with Emperor Gao at the beginning of the Han Dynasty, the tactics of the steppe and the horse archers are just too hard to deal with. But Wei Qing went and used their own tactics to beat them at their own game. Now, this is not modern conflict again. I'll reiterate that. So another distinction that we have to make is the frequency of encounters themselves. In modern war, it's an everyday experience until the war is over. You're on the front, and you're just there. But in the ancient world, the two armies, the opposing armies, were usually just big blobs that had to crash into each other at some point or another, each trying to win a decisive battle and boom, win that conflict over. So after this victory here, three years passed until another notable encounter occurred. And with that, Wei Qing was going to try and strike the heart right here and right now. I mean, he had the Xiongnu pretty much in the palm of his hands, it seems. And I know this has been a lot of information and conflicts, but so far... Both sides have taken solid shots at each other. But alas, the Han clearly have the upper hand. So riding high on his victory, Wei Qing decided to go into the Gobi Desert and strike the heart of the enemy. But this campaign was 
Purik at best. As the Xiongnu by this point had gotten their legs back under themselves, and, well, the Xiongnu had the vastness of the steppe to fall back into, and they just simply up and moved their capital further away whenever they had to. Fighting in and around China is one thing. Going into the Gobi Desert is a vast unknown. But after the pacification of the Ordis Loop under the leadership of General Wei Qing, Emperor Wu looked for the next front to launch a massive offensive. The Xiongnu are a confederacy, they're everywhere. So he needs to open another front. He opted to attempt to rid the Hexi Corridor of the Xiongnu. That was to be the next big offensive. The Hushi Corridor is very important, and I highly recommend, if you don't know where it is, to either Google it or check it out on the post for this episode. But it's a region in northwest China that held valuable northern routes of the Silk Road, as well as a vital military posting. The region was vast and rugged, thus it provided little natural support for the Han while favoring the nomadic tribesmen of the Xiongnu. And also, if you draw a line from the Hushi Corridor, to the center of the Han, that line would cut right through Xiongnu tribes. If they win it, it's a strategic location, it has great resources, but it's also going to divide the enemy. In 121 BC, he ordered Huo Qubing to purge the region of the Xiongnu. Wait, who, who in the world is Huo Qubing? Ah, well, the conflict is clearly starting to expand into a massive, multi-front conflict with giant armies operating independently over hundreds, if not thousands of miles. Go look at a map. The Hushi Corridor is really out there. But who is Huo Qubing? H-U-O, and then it's Q-U-B-I-N-G. Huo Qubing is my favorite character in this story. And he really is the rock star of it. At least I think so. First off, he was born in 140 BC. Quick math, thus he was 18 years old when he was given the generalship for the army aimed dead at the Hushi Corridor. Huo Qubing was a cast-out, illegitimate child who had gained the attention of Emperor Wu during his early years and was brought along for the ride. As a 15-year-old in 123 BC, he had served with distinction, and by the age of 18, he was deployed as his own leader. Yeah, when I was 18, let's see, yeah, I thought taking a road sign was the utmost extreme thing I could do. But yeah, you get the idea. He is young, but he's capable. In the spring of that year, 121 BC, Huo Qubing embarked to the Hushi Corridor and simply put, went on an absolute tear. I mean, clinical Pro Bowl-sized tear. He rapidly advanced hundreds of miles past the Yanzhi Mountains, quickly capturing or killing 18,000 Xiongnu soldiers. Later in the summer of 121 BC, Huo Qubing moved his army into the Anshan Desert, where he prepared to push enemy troops out of their positions in the Qilian Mountains. Huo Qubing then proceeded to give the Xiongnu 
one of their worst defeats yet, as according to the Book of Han, he killed 30,000 and captured another 2,800. Boom. The tribes of the Xiongnu that were defeated here, the Xiaotu and the Hunye, briefly considered fully surrendering. They just lost 30,000. They are now cut off right now from the rest of the Xiongnu because the Han just took a swath of land in between them. However, they quickly changed their mind. And I should have double clarified this, but again, the Xiongnu are a tribal confederation, not one people. So these two tribes that are a part of the Xiongnu confederation sometimes work with their own interests. Anyway, the Xiaotu and Hunye both decide to surrender and then go, you know what, mm, we're going to renege on that. We're not surrendering. Hua Chubing then says, okay, proceeded to systematically hunt them down and killed another 8,000 men just cause. But most decisively, he killed the Xiaotu king. So the Hunye and the Xiaotu tribes of the Xiongnu confederation, <laughs> after losing another 8,000 and one of their kings, decided, okay, this time we're going to surrender completely. And they did so to Huo Chubing and submitted their tribes completely to the Han. Two princes and thousands of dead men. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And honestly, this battle changed the course of the war as it helped divide the lands in ways that literally divided the Xiongnu, who, as we know, were only really formidable when unified. You know, a tribe by itself is really nothing against the Han, but together, as we can tell already, the Xiongnu were dangerous. This victory allowed the Han to take all of the land from the Hushi Corridor to Lupner, L-O-P-N-U-R. If I butchered that, please forgive me. But this quote was cutting off the Xiongnu from their Chang allies, end quote. So the Han soon established four commanderies in the region to secure it, which then allowed for Han settlers to populate the region. This wasn't just a battle against the Xiongnu. This doubled as a colonization effort. And when you see the map of the Han Dynasty, this is a massive addition. The official government historical report from the time describes, quote, Through these long-term strategies, the emperor managed to open the four commanderies west of the Yellow River, which cut off the southern Qiang and gathered in 36 kingdoms of the western regions, cutting off the right arm of the Xiongnu. The Chan Yu, the Khan or leader, had to scurry far away alone like a frightened rat, end quote. I mean, I wish we produced government records like that today. It's incredible. They cut off an entire arm of the Xiongnu by doing this. And the purging of the Xiongnu allowed for the Han to conquer far and wide, as well as gain control of invaluable trade routes that benefited China not only right then, but for dynasties to come and forever alter the influence China had on the outside world. The Silk Road's going to start, you know, becoming a really big thing right about now. And so while the victory was crucial, again, on a military standpoint, the benefits are, I mean, astounding. Now, that was all a lot of information again. 
And in the interest of getting this episode and the massive battle of Mo Bay and the two-pronged thousand-plus-mile offensive that's going to happen, that is where I will leave it for today. But right now, the Han just got the keys to the Silk Road. They just cut the arm off the Xiongnu. They have sent the Chanyu of the Xiongnu scurrying like a rat. Things are looking good, but the war is not over. Next week, oh man, it's just going to keep getting better. In the meantime, remember to check out the website, rate and subscribe, and donate to the I'm Not Done Yet Foundation. It would mean a lot to me. And if you're going to donate, put a little note or, you know, the history of China so I know on the website that it's you and not some random person just donating just cause. Well, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the history of China. <laughs>